you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to take it and turn to the book of Mark. Follow along as we explore this passage in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Independence Day, 246 years ago, we declared our freedom from England's King George. But now, in this passage, Jesus calls us to declare our dependence on God Almighty without any reservation. So I want you to remember as I, we go into this passage where Jesus is and his disciples are. They're on Wednesday of Passion Week. So Good Friday's coming, two days away. They're still on Wednesday. And Jesus and his disciples have come back to Jerusalem. But on their way back to Jerusalem from Bethany, which is a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, they have had a lesson on the fig tree being cursed and what that means. They had a lesson on prayer and faith and what that entails. There was an authority question by some of the religious leaders, and Jesus answered that. There was a question and a lesson, I mean, on the verdict of the religious leaders using the parable of the tenant farmers. And now they're going to send some more people to ask him questions. They just can't seem to get enough punishment. They continue to attempt to trap Jesus so that they can destroy him, even kill him, and be rid of his constant rebuke. They're tired of listening to Jesus and watching the crowds follow him. They're jealous. So listen this morning as we read another failed attempt to trap Jesus. Starting with verse 13 of chapter 12 of Mark. They, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson, and we know that it can speak to so many aspects of life here on planet Earth. But help us to see this morning that you really want us to understand it's about our heart. It's about where we are and what we give to you in our lives. Show us that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus is confronted again with some very blatant hypocrisy. It's so, it's so obvious. And Jesus uses this trap to spring on them some really clarified truth, some truth that they should have known, some truth that they should have accepted, but they hadn't. So Jesus is going to define a valid truth for those who will hear him and in the meantime defeats an evil plot they have to trap him, these hypocritical schemers. So what did Jesus define from the hypocrisy of these schemers? Well, Jesus clarifies truth from evil design questions. And the first point and the only point this morning is God's ways surpass all the flawed answers of humanity. Anyone's, 
answers that they think they already know about God, sometimes God just goes the opposite direction with his truth. So let me walk through this and kind of explain some of the conditions here. So another group comes, and they say, they say they sent, which means the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders, they sent this group to Jesus. And they're out to destroy his reputation. They're out to destroy his life if they can. They don't care what they destroy. They just want to get rid of Jesus. So they're trying anything they can. And so let's examine the Pharisees and the Herodians for a moment. Talk about two of the strangest groups to be paired together on anything. These are worse than Republicans and Democrats, okay? I mean, way worse, all right? So let me explain a little bit. Let me explain a little bit. The Pharisees, <clears throat> the Pharisees are teachers and instructors of the law. They're, they're, uh, uh, their function is as a scribe, but they have adopted the name Pharisee to, to basically mark off their position on theology, they're a leading party right now at this time in Palestine. They're like, they've got control of the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body for Jew, the Jewish religion at the time. They've got control, and this body governs Judaism, and they are the leaders of it, but they're also the scribes, the teachers of the law. Who's the other party? Well, it's the Sadducees, and you'll meet them next week because they're going get, to get into this game as well. But I'll talk about them next week. But they're the, the minority in the Sanhedrin. Now, here's what the Pharisees are. They hold a very, very, very legalistic adherence to God's law. Now, that sounds good initially, but they do it with traditions and extra rules that God never issued. They've set up what they think is guardrails, but really, they've even gotten to a point where they violate God's commands. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronts them about one regarding your parents not taking care of your parents because you say you've pledged your money to God when really you can use that money for whatever you want to use it for until you pass and then you can pass it on to God. <clears throat> now the other side of the Pharisees, they also dislike Rome. They don't like being ruled by Rome. They just, they just completely disgust them. They despise it. They dislike the rule of Herod the Great or Herod the King that's going on. Herod rules Galilee, which is the northern region of Palestine at this time. Herod was put there by Rome. Herod's not even Jewish, but he's declared the king of the Jews in Galilee. The Pharisees can't stand that. Because he's not a descendant of David. He's not even Jewish, like I said. And I want you to remember that, that he's not even Jewish. He's actually Idumean and Samaritan. And I don't know who his parents were and which ones were which, but Idumean is actually a, a distant descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. And the uh, Samaritans are actually not half-breeds because by this time, the Jews that intermarried with the Assyrians, their bloodline is gone in that line. So they resent Herod because he's not Jewish. So now let's look at the other party, the Herodians. And like I said, these are worse than Democrats and Republicans. The Herodians are Jews. At least they got that going for them. They're Jews who, but they accept the Roman rule. They love the fact that Rome's there. They appreciate that Herod is king of Galilee. They love all of that. They think it's great. They will gladly follow any Roman law to keep the peace, at least the peace in their mind. So they don't mind paying taxes. They don't mind anything because they think this is a good thing. We have a good life. 
because of what Rome has done for us. It's amazing. I mean, they accept and delight in Pilate, the prefect of Rome that's, that's in Jerusalem and governing there. And so the Herodians, very pro-Rome, and the Pharisees, very anti-Rome, are working together. How, you say, can two groups this diametrically opposed work together? I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> Since Mark chapter 3, verse 6, which is about three years ago in the timeline, they have been working together to come up with some sort of trick, some sort of plot to trick Jesus into betraying himself with his words. And three years later, this is what they bring with him. They have put aside their giant differences. And I'm talking giant differences. I mean, it's not just, it's not just this tax or that tax, like the Republicans and the Democrats. It's no tax or, or all tax. And a, a bunch of other stuff, too. <clears throat> they put aside their giant differences to oppose a common enemy. That's why they can work together. All the sinful world will unite against Jesus Christ. It will happen. It has happened. It will happen in this country. It already is, is happening in this country. It's a fact. They will unite. They will put aside all their differences. And we see it today. And Jesus warned us that it would happen. And now he's experiencing it face to face. So you have these two groups. They come together. And they're attempting to trap Jesus in compromising his word in some form or fashion. So the Pharisees and the Herodians come up with this question. Now, I want you to listen, first of all, to the way they set this up in verse 14. I want you to hear the flattery. Listen to this. I mean, when a, when a, when a statement has these many clauses, my goodness. Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Really? Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Man, that's dripping with yucky flattery. They are flattering Jesus to the nth degree. By the way, if anyone speaks to you with that many flowery remarks, you might want to take caution and not listen to them. Don't let hypocrisy of position and status. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trick Jesus into being concerned about who he is and what his status with the people is. But we should never let hypocrisy of status, of wealth, of, of our birth heritage blind us to the truth of God. But they're trying to do that with Jesus right here. So they use these truth-sounding platitudes to fake agreement with Jesus. I mean, they're, they're saying things they've never said before. They're saying things that actually countermand things they've said to Jesus before. Newsflash, the Pharisees agree with Jesus. Not really. It's a lie. They don't. They're trying to lure Jesus into pride they're trying to beguile him into betraying himself into some sort of self-loving mindset. Why? Because it works on them, <laughs> so they might as well try it on Jesus, right? He's just a man in their minds, but he's not. So now they've gotten through the flattery, and, and, and in the midst of all that smoke, here they drop the question. They're hoping Jesus gets disoriented by all the smoke and mirrors and the flattery, but... They drop the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now that's the question they've been working on for nearly three years. It's a good question in terms of 
trying to trap somebody, it's not a simple question. <clears throat> it's got a few words, but it's not a simple question. First of all, lawful. What do they mean by lawful? Well, the Pharisees, of course, they think lawful in God's eyes. But the Herodians think lawful to Rome. That's the only law they care about. So there's a two-sided definition of lawful there. But really, God's law is the implication because Jesus claims himself to, be come from God, to have come from God. He's a man of God. Does God forbid paying taxes? That's kind of one of the first, the really one lesson behind there, one question behind the question. And the second is, why would this be even a concern? Why does this even matter? Well, that's why the two groups involved have come together. And that's why they're in this confrontation, because they know that there's a no-win answer. There's a no-win situation they think they've put before Jesus. See, the Pharisees think it is wrong to pay taxes to Caesar because they think it's a form of idolatry and worship to Caesar. And I'll explain that in a minute. The Herodians think it's right because they think it's the life they have through Rome is worth paying for. It's the, it's the price of civilization. I don't know if you've heard that quote, but that's what taxes are, the price of civilization or a civilized society. But let's examine the two answers that they're, they are looking for because they're looking for two, one of two answers. Yes or no? They're looking for just one of those answers. They've asked, in their minds, they've asked a yes and no question. You know, but it would, really wouldn't change their minds, either, either party, no matter what Jesus says, by the way, okay? They're not going to follow Jesus. They're asking to trap Jesus. So if Jesus says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, and he says that to please the Pharisees, he would get in some very serious trouble. The Herodians would report him to Pilate for an act of sedition, an act of rebellion, and possibly a revolution. But if Jesus answered, yes, pay taxes, then the Pharisees would be like to the people saying, look, what Jesus is saying, he's saying we should submit to Rome's, that, that Rome's rule. We should give in to them. And the Jewish people might disavow him and maybe even show some violence toward him and the Pharisees would definitely make sure they all heard about it. So that's the two answers, yes or no. Well, taxes were a major issue. We think they're major today too, but nothing like this. Um, and, and it could lead to massive problems if Jesus didn't answer this correctly. Why? Well, here's a history lesson for you. In 6 AD, a man named Judas, a Galilean, formed the group called the Zealots. And their, their primary purpose was to eradicate Rome's taxation. If it, if it meant getting Rome out of there, great. And that's what they really wanted. So they led a revolt against Roman taxation. And it was crushed. It was crushed hard. But the Romans always feared another revolt over this whole thing. And the Jews wanted another revolt. See, they had come out of the glory days in between the two testaments in your Bible. There was a, a glory day of Maccabean revolt where they, where they defeated kings and armies that had uh, captured Israel. So Rome was fearing this taxation revolt again. And you know what? In 66 AD, it happened again. The Jews revolted against the taxes of Rome, and eventually Rome completely destroyed the country and the nation of Israel, which led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and did away with all Jewish religious sacrifices and that form of their religion that aspect of their religion. So this is a tough question, and, and Jesus needs to respond care, carefully, not carelessly. 
Because he could get into quite a predicament. I'm not worried about Jesus. I hope you're not. But that's what it looks like to the human eye. Wow, that's a tough question. Yes or no? They believed Jesus had to give one of those answers, yes or no. It had to be definitive. And they were sure that either answer would destroy Jesus. They were so convinced. Remember, they've been working on this question for three years. It was their master plan to take over the world kind of thing, if you know what I'm talking about. But God's ways do not conform to human ideas, okay? God's ways do not conform to the human answers that we come up with sometimes. They really asked a faulty question because they sought specific answers. See, their whole premise depended on getting a certain answer from Jesus. But Jesus gives them God's truth about this situation, God's blessed truth. And it applies even today. So, Let's see how he answers. First of all, he says, why are you testing me? Why are you testing me? Now, he's not asking them, why are you asking me about taxes or Roman rule or God's law? Why are you trying to corner me one more time? That's really what Jesus is asking them. Why are you trying to corner me? You have failed before, you will fail again. That's the implication here. Why can't they just accept Jesus' truth? Well, because they got hard hearts. And because they're afraid of losing their position and status. So then he says, okay, bring me a denarius. So they bring a denarius, which is a coin. And on that coin is an inscription and an image, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it was a coin issued, and it was worth a day's salary for a common worker. So it basically is the way you supported yourself with uh, your jobs. It equals a common day worker's It's valuable. It's valuable. Rome has declared this is valuable. So they, they issue it, just like the, the paper money in your, in your wallet or the coins in your pocket. It's declared to be valuable. And they readily produce a denarius. So that means two things. First of all, they have one, so they accept Romans, the Roman coinage, the Roman state that this is worth something. That's one thing it says, which exposes both groups' hypocrisy to a certain degree. They both are like, well, we have a denarius right here, you know, and they didn't have to go get one. So it exposes the fact that they already accept that the denarius is something they will use for trade and economic purposes. The other thing it says is it means that they're wealthy. They're, they don't have any concerns. And, and this one coin is equal to the annual tax they pay per person. That's what the tax that they're talking about. It's a per person tax. So every human being in your household, you would have to give one denarius to the Roman government every year for those people. That's the tax that's causing the uproar here. So Jesus asked them a simple question then. Whose image and what inscription is on it? But the answers really reveal the motives behind their question and Jesus' answers. First of all, the image is Caesar's. Probably Caesar Augustus at this point in time. Um, some people may think it was Tiberius's image on there because it was an old coin and they didn't recall them all. But the image is Caesar's, which is a, a nice term like we use for president, for all of our presidents sometimes. And they recognize that it's Caesar's. And the inscription is about Caesar. But here's the problem with the inscription. It declares Caesar a god. It declares on the coin in Latin that Caesar is divine, a god. 
So this is why the Pharisees reject it. They think it's an image, of a graven image, and, and that by giving it to Caesar, you're worshiping Caesar, and that makes it a form that breaks the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. No graven images, no worship. They think that paying that tax with that coin is a particular violation of that commandment, but the reality is, is that idolatry is never just about an action. It's about a heart condition. See, the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai built the golden calf or had the golden calf built by Aaron because they didn't trust God with their hearts. And they, they wanted something else to follow, but their hearts were not following God. Idolatry always involves the heart. And now Jesus takes this coin after they've answered and he's kind of proven their point that they accept the coin. And even though they're, they're saying that they don't like the idea of worshiping Caesar with this coin, he now answers them verbally. Give Caesar, the owner of the coin, what's due to Caesar, which is taxes. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pretty simple. Vague enough that the Herodians aren't going to get too upset. But Jesus isn't trying to evade the question. He's just saying a pure and simple fact. And then the second half of his answer is the part that we need to pay attention to. Give to God the things that are God's. What are God's things? What are God's things? Everything. Everything. Everything we see, everything we own, everything that's around us, everything that anybody else owns, it all belongs to God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He even owns the potatoes in the hills. I mean, he owns everything. He owns everything. So Jesus is giving them this truth. God's sovereign rule is over everything on planet Earth and the universe. God's sovereign rule is over everything. God governs all creation. It all belongs to God. So Jesus turns their yes and no question into a both and and question and answer. You can obey Caesar. You can pay taxes to Caesar. And you can obey God at the same time. Because you know why? Caesar is not God. Or not a God even. God is God. The Lord is our God, as the psalmist wrote this morning in Psalm 100. So the answer just blew their minds. They're like, where did he get such wisdom? Where did he get such understanding to come up with this answer? The fact is that they didn't accept Jesus as who he was, but they had to accept his answer because his answer was right. For, for the Pharisees who knew God is God one, the Lord our God is one, love only the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. I mean, they knew that. The Herodians, they were Jews and they knew that too. So nobody could really reject it. The Herodians left thinking, well, he didn't tell them not to pay taxes. And the Pharisees left, well, he didn't say, yeah, you, you were worshiping Caesar. So they accepted it. But they didn't accept him. Now, even at the trial of Jesus, when we get to that, it won't be in Mark, but in other places, they bring up this very discussion about Jesus telling them not to pay taxes to Caesar. I didn't hear that in there. Nobody else did. And that's why that particular witness was dismissed. He didn't even count toward proving Jesus' guilt. It's a win-win in this situation. And Jesus has done for us right here in front of us, out of all this hypocrisy, out of all of these conspiring and scheming men, he's extracted 
and all-encompassing truth, a quality about God that we need to remember always. He owns everything. Their hypocritical and faulty question and answers didn't matter because God is sovereign over everything. This tax thing kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? December 1773, the famous for us, infamous for the British, Boston Tea Party. That was all over taxes. Um, they revolted against the tax on tea because a British citizen was not allowed to be taxed without representation. And the colonists considered themselves citizens of the crown. So they revolted. They threw the tea in the harbor of Boston. But the revolt began what eventually became the revolution. And our Declaration of Independence, which we celebrate tomorrow, it materialized about three years later, three and a half, two and a half years later, and the USA is the end product. Praise God. Thank God for what, what happened. But I have this question. What if Britain had won the war? Would all be speaking English? We still are speaking English, so I don't know what the problem is. If Britain had won the war, if they had squashed the rebellion and established English rule to this day, and that we were under the crown, would God's truth of sovereignty still be in effect? Would it still be applicable to our lives? Would this truth still exist under the tyranny of a monarch? Because King George is kind of crazy. Yes. <laughs> if you don't know the answer, the answer is yes. God's truth of sovereignty would still be applicable. Regardless of what King George owned, regardless of what tax he put on us, God's sovereign rule would still reign over us. And we could still obey God and the king to a certain degree. Because God's truth keeps marching on. God's truth keeps marching on. No matter what the government does. Just ask Chinese Christians who are meeting today, hiding somewhere and meeting as a church. They resist the government over there in those manners. But it's going on in more places than China. It's going on in Afghanistan now. His truth keeps marching on because he is a sovereign God. You know, Paul speaks to this, to the fact that God's truth ruling in our hearts, even under the emperor's rule, Nero. Emperor was, Nero was a terrible Caesar. He was terrible. Because enemies do not win against God. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippians. He's writing to them from prison, by the way, in Rome under Nero. For many, Paul says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Our citizenship, those who believe in Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It doesn't matter who the government is. Jesus that's Jesus' answer. Paul, Paul has fleshed it out for them. That's Jesus' answer. 
Jesus subjects all things to himself. The enemies of Jesus become the enemies of the cross and eventually the enemies of believers, no matter who's in charge of the government. And our faith must never be shaken by the government or the demise of society. Our eyes must be on heaven where our soul resides. Now, before you run and tell everybody that the pastor spoke against America, I did not. I am all for the USA. I got 25 years to prove it. I love the freedoms we possess. They are glorious. They are wonderful. And the chance to use them for the kingdom of God is an even bigger blessing that we have. Our economy yields us the funds to assist many with their needs. And trust me, I do this every week. There are a lot of people out there with material needs, and we help a lot of people in this community. But it also helps us to spread the gospel all over the world like our friend Emily that's going to Japan in a couple of months. Now, we all dislike taxes. I'm not going to, I know I don't have to, I'm preaching to the choir on that one for sure. But we sure love the benefits of taxes. Roads, infrastructure, schools, programs, whatever you, you name, we like those things. But you know what? Taxes and patriotism is not what this passage is really about. Not at all. It's not even really about money. I was afraid some of you wouldn't come if I, when I told you this week on the call out that I was preaching on give to God what is God. You're thinking, oh, here comes another money sermon. No, it's not even about money. It is about our hearts. It's about our hearts. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they loved their position so much that they were willing to come together, stark enemies, come together to fight against Jesus because their hearts were truly tainted by their greed. So for us this morning, we need to ask a question, what are the reservations in our heart? What are we reserving for ourselves? Do we live and we hold our possessions with open hands or closed fists? Do we live like they belong to God, our possessions, or even just our life? As believers in Christ, we need to live with open hands and open hearts. See, God grants everything you have, your time, your money, Get those out of the way first. Your health, your abilities, your location, where you live, the opportunities that are afforded you in this country. All of that comes from God. Not some government program. Not some benefactor. It all comes from God. And you know what? He expects us to use them righteously. Are our hearts open and generous toward God with all of our blessings? Do we look for ways to give all, all things to God? Or do we hoard and hold back stuff? Now, I'm not telling you to put yourself in abject poverty. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I don't think God is saying that. But he's talking about an attitude of your heart. Where's your heart? What's your heart? Jesus said, give to God the things that are God's. Let that guide you. Let that thought continue to remind you how to use your, your faculties, how to live your life, to schedule your time. Give to God the things that are God's. Let your heart trust him completely. Let your mouth talk about his forgiveness to other people. There's a lot of world out there that still needs forgiveness. Give to God the things that are God's. Let nothing be off limits to him. Keep faith in Jesus no matter what. Real contentment and real peace 
flows from a heart and soul that releases to God all things, everything, without exception, because he owns it all. He owns it all. Jesus turned their hypocrisy into a divine gold, basically, for us, for God's kingdom. His truth never fails to serve us well. Now, understand something about this passage. Realize where Jesus is. He's on his way to the cross. He's two days out from the cross. He's two days out from suffering the worst known torture and agony the world has ever seen. The cross. The crucifixion. He is giving everything to God. He's holding nothing back. And Jesus perfectly gave God the things that are God's. And we can too. First, we need to give our faith to Jesus Christ. We need to trust him. His death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation, for our forgiveness. We can receive right now from that, even as we give our faith to him. And once our soul is redeemed, we can live for God. We can live for God by the grace that saves our soul. The grace of God that saves is the grace of God that affords us the ability to give it all up for him. And the privilege of giving. The privilege of giving, not the chore, not the task. The privilege. See, living here with our citizenship in heaven, it yields great benefits. We need to remember that. It yields great benefits. Because when we get to heaven, all we have given will be restored in some form or fashion. When Jesus greets us, he will say to us, if we've been open-handed with everything, thank you for giving to my kingdom. Well done. Enter into your rest. If you're like me, you need to surrender things every day. Oh, yeah. There's little idols in our hearts all the time. We're always hanging on to something. We need to surrender them to God. And he'll help us. He'll help us to release those things. He'll help them not become so important to us that we hang on to them. So let's take some time now at our pastoral prayer to, to pray. You can do it right there silently, or you can come to the front and pray. It's up to you. We're going to have a minute or so of silent prayer, and then I'll close this out. But ask God to help you not hold anything back, to give to God the things that are God's. Let's pray.